am honored to open God's Word and look at two verses this morning from Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, continuing in the series through Exodus. And at this point in time, we are in the Ten Commandments, the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Uh, from Exodus 20, verses 13 and 14. Uh, before we get to those verses, let's, uh, let's spend some time in prayer. So would you pray with me? God, we, we come before you this morning to thank you and praise you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, uh, the ability that you have given us to gather here this morning. God, we're thankful uh, to hear uh, the voices of, of one another singing. Uh, we pray and ask, God, that you would uh, set aside this time that we're spending in your word uh, to, to use the word that you have given to us to conform us to the image of your Son, in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask, God, that you would just help us to listen to what it is that you say to us in your word. And, and God, we are so thankful that you have indeed revealed yourself to us. We're thankful, God, that we can be in relationship with you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we ask that, that you would draw us closer to yourself this morning. Conform us to the image of your Son and and ultimately, God, we ask that, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We love you, God, we praise you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was 14, 15-ish years old, I got pulled over on a four-wheeler on a highway. Now, before you judge me too hard, maybe it might, you know, help to, to know that I was on my way home from church, uh, and, and I got pulled over, and the officer walked up behind me, and his first words to me were, are you crazy? And I, I thought about it. I mean, I, 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 I didn't think I was. Uh, I was the sound guy. And had to get to the first service. My parents weren't going, so I convinced them to let me take the four-wheeler. Little did I know that while I was at church, the snow emergency had been lifted. So what I was doing, driving the four-wheeler on the highway, was now highly illegal. Not only was it illegal, though, it was, it was pretty unsafe. Now, I was fortunate enough that, that in the time that I was driving on the highway, there were no other cars or anything uh, that were there. Uh, but the law that is in place that would prevent me from driving a four-wheeler on the highway is there for my safety and for the safety of others driving on that highway. I was 14, though, and didn't quite get it. But it's true. And, and so as we look at two commands from God this morning, two laws from His Word, that should be our posture as well. 
that we see the law of God existing for our good. So as we go through these two commandments, may our prayer be that of David in Psalm 119, verse 18, when he says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. That being said, Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, read this way. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Within each of these laws, there is an explicit thou shalt not. Something that we are not supposed to do. But there's also an implicit thou shalt. Something that we are to do in light of what God commands. And so whether we follow the command by not murdering or by respecting life, we are following these commands for the sake of holiness. And even if you're not guilty of the explicit thou shalt not, you and I must make effort to live according to the implicit thou shalt. So we're looking at two commandments today, and in those two commandments, I want to make one point. That is, your heart matters in matters of obedience. Two commandments, one point, your heart matters in matters of obedience. So starting in verse 12, which Pastor Tim preached last week, we've transitioned to the second table of the law. That is the last of the six Ten Commandments. The first four deal directly with our relationship to God. The last six deal directly with our relationship to others. So so if you're ever wondering, how am I to relate to God? How does God desire for me to interact with Him? Look to the first four commands. God is the only true God. Don't make idols. Don't misuse God's name and set aside one day in seven for the worship of this one true God. And if you ever want to know how God desires for us to interact with one another, look to the final six. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. That's why in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four and following, When Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment, he sums up the entire Old Testament and all of its laws by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or we could simply summarize this as it's summarized in the mission statement of Big Woods as love God, love people. So what we see here in the law of God is that God gives his law at at Sinai to show how he desires us to be in relationship with him and with others while being holy. And these laws exist for our good. So so reading God's Word and hearing it explained is different than anything else that we might read or hear explained in the coming week. 
Reading a cookbook does not require you to get out pots and pans and start cooking. It'd be a good idea, but it's not required simply by reading this cookbook. But reading God's word obligates us to live a certain way because in the word of God we encounter the truth. And when we encounter God's truth in his word, it requires us to live in light of it. Within each commandment then, God instructs us how to live loving God and people. So God gives us his law, and and his law is rooted in his character and nature to show us what he is like, but then also how we can be like him. The problem is, though, that as we read the law, we realize how unlike God we are. God's law is given to, uh, given to us to show us our need for a Savior. You and I fall desperately short of what is required by, by God's standards. And yet, there is one who perfectly obeyed. Jesus, being truly God, did not fall short. Jesus, being truly man, stands in our place. That by faith, his perfect righteousness could be credited to us. So the law of God serves us by pointing us to Jesus. The only one who perfectly followed the law. Now, in in the history of the church, there's been a teaching method that has been employed that not only teaches us what questions we should ask, but also answers them in succinct, easy-to-remember statements. It's called a catechism, and and you've heard Pastor Tim quote the, the Westminster Catechism already that dates back to the 1640s and has, has one version of 107 questions, another with 196 questions. Um, and, and Brianna and I have decided that in our family we're going to use one that is a little more recently published. That's a conglomeration of a number of historic doc- documents, and it's called the New City Catechism. It was on the book table at one point as, as an unofficial book, uh, but if you don't have the book, that's all right, because there's a great app and a great website that has all of the, all of the resources that you would need uh, to be able to, to benefit from uh, this resource. It has songs, it has prayers, it has commentary, it has memory verses, and it has a child's version for shorter answers. Uh, the, the New City has 52 question, questions and answers, which if you do the math, that works out to uh, one question per week for a year. And it makes for great dinner table conversation, or uh, in our case this morning, great singing at the breakfast table. I say all of this not only to commend to you this great resource, but to show you what sort of questions we should ask about God's law. So for instance, in question 7 of the New City Catechism, we see that uh, it's instructive for us in how we should live. It asks a simple question, what does the law of God require? The answer, that we love God with all our heart soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. We've already seen that in Matthew 22. 
It goes on, though, then to question 13 and asks, Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? It answers, Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. And that one's followed by question 14 to ask, Did God create us unable to keep the law? It answers, No. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. Which then leads us to question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? It answers that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. The law also teaches, us, teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. There's, there's a logical progression to these questions that I'm sure many of you have, have thought about already. And so it's a great resource to be able to, to, to teach us what questions to ask, but also to help us answer the questions we already have. And so what we see in the Ten Commandments, specifically 6 and 7 this morning, by looking at God's law, we see His perfection and we see our imperfection. God's law is given to us so that we can know what God is like, so that we can know what we are like, and to show us that we need a Savior to bridge the gap that exists between God and us. So in all honesty, the Ten Commandments are, are pretty straightforward. There are passages in the Bible that are, that are harder to understand than others. I don't think that the, the, the Ten Commandments that we're looking at this morning fit into that category. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Got it. But don't close your Bibles just yet, because the difficulty that exists in these two commandments is not in the understanding, it's in the application. It's in the many different areas of our lives that should be affected by what we hear in God's Word. In commandments 6 and 7 this morning, we also see them specifically restated in the New Testament to give us a deeper look at the heart of the matter and how we are to live in light of what God commands. We'll get there, but first, let's start by looking at the commands themselves. Each of the commands, each uh, six and seven, are two words in the original language. So if we were to directly translate what we see in Hebrew, it would read, no murder, no adultery. And contained in these four words are massive implications for our lives today. So first, you shall not murder. To put it simply, God prohibits murder and requires that we respect life. This command is rooted in what is known as the imago Dei, the image of God. When God created man and woman on the sixth day, he created them 
in his own image. And so that means that the the foundation for this command is theological. The foundation is that men and women bear the image of God. And so we must respect the image of God in man and woman. This means the right to take life begins, uh, belongs to God alone. Notice, though, the, the specific word that we're using that is found in most translations is the word murder. The sixth commandment applies specifically to the willful, intentional taking of life for reasons not conditioned by God. So Exodus 20 verse 13 is not the verse to go to in discussions of, uh, of say, pacifism or, or capital punishment. And it says nothing in regards to animals because only human beings bear the image of God. The word used in the original Hebrew is very specific. And this verse is not speaking to, to those issues, but there would be verses other, other, way, uh, other places in Scripture that we could go to uh, to think through biblically about such things. For instance, we could go to Genesis 9-6. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This verse, along with Romans chapter 13, which, which speaks of the governing authority's power to wield the sword, shows that there is some sort of, some sort of derived authority from God that leaves open the possibility that both war and capital punishment could be biblically allowable. I say that simply to show that, that what is being prohibited here is something very specific. The intentional, unjust taking of a life that bears the image of God. And this comes straight from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where, where in this verse, God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of man. One commentator says this way, The life in us came from the breath of God. We are not to take away what God has given. To follow this command then, to... to To be able to love both God and people means that we are to respect what God has created and stamped with his image by leaving up to God the decision for the breath of life to be extinguished. As is popularly said and is rooted in the sixth commandment, the power of life and death belongs to God from the womb to the tomb. So the sixth commandment prohibits us from unjustly taking life and calls us to preserve and honor life that is given by God. So what about the seventh commandment? It says, you shall not commit adultery. To put it simply, God prohibits adultery and requires that we live purely. This command is rooted in the creation ordinance given by God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. God places a high importance on marriage and family and thus protects it with the seventh commandment. The purpose of this command is to ensure that husbands, wives, and children are protected emotionally and physically in marriage by covenant faithfulness. What is prohibited is the idea of of free love. 
And instead, we see that intimacy is to be protected and directed. Protected by covenant vows and directed only to your spouse. The gift of sex that God has given functions only within the bounds of the marriage covenant. I think it was Randy Alcorn who who illustrates this like a fireplace. He says that there is a designated area in your house that can sustain a fire. Anywhere else will cause damage. God designed sex as more than a physical act, so taking it outside of the boundaries of the covenant of marriage causes damage to all involved. So God prohibits that in the seventh commandment. What seems to some as a rule preventing fun and freedom is actually meant for our good. It's meant for our protection. God designed marriage to be a sewing together of souls. And adultery tears apart what God has joined together. And this is neither loving to God nor people. So it's prohibited by God for our good. The seventh commandment prohibits unfaithfulness calling us rather to purity and commitment and is to picture the faithfulness of God. Exodus chapter 20 is not the last time that these commands come up as they are repeated and reiterated many places in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I find one of the most helpful places to be Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. The Ten Commandments had, had come to be misunderstood So Jesus corrects this wrong thinking in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, the explanations of these commands is the easy part. But what we see in the New Testament is that there is more to it than prohibiting certain actions. Jesus shows that the holiness prescribed by the law was never merely external or action-based but is rather a matter of the heart. So what we see is that your heart matters in matters of obedience. In Matthew 5, Jesus is is by no means correcting the Ten Commandments. He's correcting how they came to be understood. That's why he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Those, Those who had come to misunderstand these Ten Commandments Jesus even calls whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside, but were full of death on the inside. Or to put it another way, they were doing the right action with a dead heart. So when Jesus shows the requirement of the law to be a matter of the heart, he's telling them they were still missing the heart of the matter. The Old Testament is is full of verses that that say the same thing, showing the importance of the heart. God looks on the heart in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, when he's choosing David to be king. Psalm 19, 14 tells us that the meditations of our hearts are to be acceptable in God's sight. We must have clean hands and a pure heart. According to Psalm 24.4. And Proverbs 4.23 says that we are to guard our hearts. Because from it flow the springs of life. 
These verses and and many others throughout the Old Testament had been neglected by the religious leaders and teachers of the day. And, And people were being led astray because of their misunderstanding. And so I think for us today, that's why it's crucial for us to search the scriptures to see if what we hear lines up with what God has said. But as we search the scriptures, we must also search our hearts. God expects more than just right behavior. We must have right motivations. Rules are easy to follow, or, or at least convince the people watching you that you're, fo- that you're following them easily. But truly loving your neighbor as God requires cannot come simply by following the rules. The only way that we can truly love our neighbor is by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. First, when he gives us a new heart at salvation, and continually when he conforms us to the image of Jesus. So the challenge for our hearts comes most clearly in verses 21 to 30 of Matthew chapter 5. It says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This passage really leaves us no wiggle room. We can't kind of wiggle out of of living up to what God commands. You may be able to say, yeah, I've never murdered. But can you say you've never been angry with a brother or sister? You may be able to say, you know, I've never committed adultery. But can you say you've never lusted? Jesus is showing us that the holiness required by the law is not limited to what can be seen on the outside. Holiness is not a matter of, of whitewashing the outside. It's a matter of the heart. So then, then we should ask, what exactly is Jesus revealing about our hearts in Matthew 5? There's four things that I want to show. 
First, anger is the seed from which murder grows. The first thing we see in Matthew 5, anger is the seed from which murder grows. Which is to say that that before murder is an action, it's an attitude. And and I can't help but think of, of the current events as I hear these words of Jesus. You know, we, we, could keep this, we could keep this surface level and, and talk about all the hate that exists in other people or all of the evil that's in the world or, or you know, whatever is going on out there. But I wonder, how's your heart? Is there anger or bitterness in your heart towards a brother or sister that you are allowing to stay there? It may be that that brother or sister that that disagrees with you about what's going on in the world right now. And and look, I'm not here to tell you that you have to agree with them. I'm here to tell you that you have to love them. And you cannot hate them. I fear that many of us are, are guilty of murdering our brothers and sisters because of a disagreement over the virus or injustice in the world. And as as tragic as our current times are, more tragic is the rampant murder of the heart that we're allowing to go unchecked. We need to care about the health and well-being of our neighbors and, and injustice in the world, but not at the expense of the sixth commandment. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is that hate in your heart is murder. Hating a brother or sister makes you guilty of the sixth commandment. 1 John 2 verses 9 to 11 is is very clear on this. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And he continues in in chapter 3, verse 15, to say, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We've been confronted with the truth of God's word. So I'll ask it again. How's your heart? I'm not asking about the heart of the person that that you're in this heated debate with on Facebook. I'm not asking about the heart of the person sitting next to you. I'm asking about your heart. Are you allowing hatred or anger or bitterness to go unchecked? Are you claiming to be in the light but allowing hate in your heart towards someone made in the image of God? Confess to God and ask Him to help you walk in the light instead. And maybe what you need to do is choose to pray for your enemies instead of hating them. It's really hard to hate someone that you pray for. Try it. 
and, and, and ask God to help you love as he desires you to. The second thing we see from Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 5 is that we are to make it right, right away. We are to make it right, right away. Reconciliation must come quickly. If you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as He reveals to you that there is hatred in your heart toward a brother or sister, go to them and confess it quickly. Jesus says even to leave your gift on the altar. That might mean going now if they're here. If not, go to them quickly. Don't wait. Reconciliation with a brother or sister must come before worship of God because anger towards man and worship of God cannot coexist. Your anger towards a brother or sister will prevent you from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Because you can't love God and hate people at the same time. The law is summarized as love God, love people. And 50% is not an option. Truly loving God requires people made in His image as well. So if there's something you need to make right, do it right away. Thirdly, as we've seen with anger, so it is with lust. Adultery starts in the heart. Uh, maybe to, to say it more pr- provocatively, adultery happens in the heart long before it happens in the bedroom. If adultery starts in the heart, then it's crucial that you and I guard our hearts. So how do we do that? How are we to guard our hearts? One commentator says this, it is not enough to refrain unchaste desires from breaking forth into act. We must also refrain our hearts from entertaining any such desires. These flames pent up in the heart will soot and consume it. And though its ruin be more invisible, yet it will be sad and, un, uh, sad and fatal. We need to not entertain those desires. Don't think on them. All that to say, allowing lust to go unchecked may not be visible externally. People might not be able to look at you and say, struggling with lust. And yet, it still leads to destruction. Proverbs 25, 28. Someone without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A city without walls cannot protect itself from attacks. So, so what sort of walls might you need in your life? And just, just to be clear, married people are not immune to lust. Single people are not exempt from this commandment. And this is not a four men only issue. There certainly are differences in, in all of those groups. But the heart of the matter is the same. It's our heart that is deceitful. And, and any of us can fall prey to, to these temptations. And so we must avoid lust and guard our hearts. Don't entertain lustful desires. Instead, think on whatever is true. 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, think on things that are excellent and worthy of praise, as Philippians 4.8 says. Because what your mind dwells on, your heart will desire. So guard your heart by filling it with God's word and meditating on it day and night. It may also be helpful for you to bring somebody alongside you in this process. Ask them to help keep you accountable. Confess to them the struggles that you're having. And and walk with someone in this process. Fourth, go to great lengths to avoid lust. The examples given by Jesus in the text are not to be taken literally. You're not supposed to go home this afternoon and start gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hand. They're given to make the point that in our fight against sin, we must be willing to take extreme measures. I've had friends who, who have ceremoniously taken a sledgehammer uh, to a computer or, or reverted to the dumb phone uh, to avoid temptations on the internet. I think that's more in line with, with what Jesus is saying. Because the question is, are you willing to be inconvenienced in some way to avoid sin? To what lengths would you go to protect your heart? If there are certain times of day or, or certain situations that tempt you to lust, recognize them and avoid them. The seriousness of sin requires it. And lust comes in many forms, virtual or in real life. And, and it can't be hidden by God by clearing your browser history or sneaking around. Confess it. And avoid it by any means necessary for your good and the sake of your holiness. It's better to be inconvenienced now while there is still time than it is, as Matthew 5.31 says, to be thrown into hell. Sin is serious, so avoid it like you believe that. Now, I, I need you to know that I stand before you guilty as charged by the sixth and seventh commandment this morning. Chances are, though, if you were honest with yourself, if you looked at your heart, if you looked at your life, you would see your guilt as well. So what are we to do? There's hope. And our hope is that that though the law condemns the best of us, the gospel saves the worst of us. You and I must look outside of ourselves for a righteousness that is not our own. The importance of these laws is is not to to convince us or to show us that, you know what, we're good. I've got this figured out. The importance of these laws is to show us that we've fallen short Of what God requires. They're supposed to point us. To Jesus. Because because Jesus shows us what has been required of the law. And he shows us that we can't do it. The bar is higher than we can reach. but, But praise God. There is one. Who never sinned. Jesus is guiltless. 
of murder and adultery and and any other sin. He lived a perfect life. The standard set by the law has been met by Jesus and can be given to us by faith so that we can have the righteousness that Jesus earned. The law shows us that we don't have it. But faith makes what we don't have ours. The law demands what it can't provide. But Jesus provides what we can't do. And and if you have placed your faith in Jesus, though the guilt of the law rests on you, the just punishment that we would deserve has been taken by Jesus. But if you have not, that just punishment remains on you. But if you would turn from your sin and run to Jesus, you will be forgiven and given His very righteousness. And that is what we need. Because it's, it's hard to love our enemies But we must look to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us while we were still his enemies. It's hard to live purely, but we must look to Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Because in Jesus we have not only the example to look to, but the substitute for when we fail. So as our eyes see wondrous things from His law, may our lives reflect and our hearts desire the holiness that He calls us to. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life, for his substitutionary death, and that by faith we can be given what we can't earn. We ask God that you would be with us, that you would search our hearts, and help us then to live in light of what you have commanded. Thank you that you empower us by your spirit to do just that. Help us to live in all things for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.